this comes to the next part, is to introduce our speaker. Now, the reason a lot of you are here is because, of course, you're dedicated members of the Medico-Chirurgical Society and you're dedicated members of the Legal Society. But I suspect quite a lot of you are terribly interested to hear what Jonathan's been doing for the last five or six years. Because Jonathan was part of our medical community, was a leader in many ways. In fact, for me, he was one of the reasons I'm here, actually, apart from the fact I was trained here, that I had a particular interest in the same thing that he had an interest in, which was children's brains. And uh, he was very instrumental in uh, encouraging me to come here and then supporting me in a variety of ways once I arrived. Uh, Jonathan is charismatic, is uniquely talented, and has managed to make the transition from neurosurgery at the cutting edge, and I use that word carefully, to the law. And I suspect, although I can't judge, he's close to the cutting edge there. And he's here to give us his perspectives. And I look forward to this evening. Jonathan. Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, Thank you very much for inviting me this evening. It's so nice to see so many, I was going to say old friends, but actually so many young friends, because none of you look a day older than <laughs> when I left in 2001. So clearly you've discovered the secret. Um, anyway, I've deliberately left the title vague because I'm going to look at a number of things from a number of directions. Um, the first thing to say is Happy New Year, not just because we're halfway through January, but of course, if we were still in the Julian calendar, started by Julius Caesar in 46 BC and then laid down by him in law in 45 BC, the 14th of January would be the first day of the year. But of course, since the 16th century, uh, His Holiness Pope Gregory the 13th, had his calendar. Of course, Britain, as always, was not in the forefront of grasping this new technology. We hung on a couple of hundred years, but we did just pip Serbia at the post. It is, of course, the time of year for other anniversaries, and I just put these up just for fun, really. Um, the clarinet, because it's a great instrument. Tosca, because Puccini is a great composer, though I'm not going to sing. And this, because it touches on high-tech, and I may say a little bit about high-tech at some stage. It's also, of course, the time of year for, for pantomimes. Oh, no. oh, <laughs> and also an opportunity to show your president in a... In, in, in a guise that you may not necessarily recognise him, but also take the opportunity to publicly thank your president for supporting me in a large number of areas in my life, um, professionally, socially, emotionally, philosophically. And here he is doing it, strutting his stuff with his um, um, leading lady. <laughs> Um, perspective. <laughs> perspective, the word perspective, of course, comes from the Latin, like so many words, and there are a number of ways you can look at it. 
You can look at it either in a purely physical way, you can look at it in an intellectual way, in a philosophical manner, or in an artistic manner. And I'm going to touch on, on several of these. One way, of course, is by looking backwards. This, uh, these wise words, this useful occasionally to look at the past, to gain a perspective on the present, uh, was spoken by a US economist who actually devised a thing called the Consumer Confidence Index. Save for the fact that he died about 12 years ago, I expect he'd be keeping a rather low profile in the present economic climate. But I'm going to start by just looking backwards, just for a bit of fun. And in view of the weather, I thought we might start off with moderate hypothermia and just, just have a look at some of the things which happened in paediatric neurosurgery in Nottingham um, over, over the sort of 15, 20 years that we're involved in it. And this is a paper that was given in Melbourne in 1998 um, about using moderate hypothermia to treat severe childhood head injury. Now, this was a meeting of the International Society of Paediatric Neurosurgery. Um, your president was also actually his guest speaker. He knew Melbourne very well, and it was fortuitous because I happened to be there on my birthday, and he took me to a wonderful restaurant in Ligon Street. I think I pronounced it right, haven't I? Ligon Street? No worries. Yes, that's it. And our host, the International Society of Paediatric Neurosurgery, decided that the... Uh, the, the people attending the meeting would want to go and see these charming little beasts who are our miniature penguins. And so we were bussed out to the coast where we stood for about six hours waiting for these little animals to arrive. Your president had clearly been had before. Um, when you've seen one, you have actually seen the lot. Um, some members of the society from a slightly different, um, slightly more anal cultural background than the Europeans, decided we had to stay to see all 600. <laughs> that gave me a good opening line being the first speaker the next morning, because by the time we'd waited for these little darlings to appear from the sea, um, we actually had a unique insight into more than moderate hypothermia. Those were the mortality rates across several countries for childhood head injury in those, that period. The top one from Philadelphia was always an aberration, um, but those were, broadly speaking, the mortality rates. And people have been looking at hypothermia and traumatic brain injury for a number of years, but it had never really taken off. When I was in SHO under uh, Bernard Lewin, uh, under, um, uh, Walpole Lewin in Cambridge, we used to use hypothermia, used to chill the whole room. I can't remember a single patient surviving. Um, but it, we thought it would be worth looking at, and the way hypothermia works is it has a number of effects on the brain. It reduces intracranial pressure, reduces cerebral blood flow, reduces the requirement of the brain to oxygen, and it also reduces the number of nasty metabolites floating around. So the, the theory of it looked quite good. And we had actually done a pilot study with Alan Elias Jones, who's one of the first pieces of research we did in paediatric neurosurgery in Nottingham. And it seemed quite promising. And somebody else had done a phase two study in 
adults, which uh, looked not unpromising. So we gave it a go, and um, this was the protocol. The children were effectively anesthetized, ventilated to moderate hypocapnia, and cooled surface cooling to 32 degrees. Um, they required a lot of vigorous pulmonary care because nearly all of them got some pneumonitis, and we just kept it up for a strict five days. And we actually treated 68 children in this way, and these were the results. Um, they seemed not too bad. We compared them with um, some other data from other centers, and again, they seemed, seemed quite, quite promising. Now, those were our conclusions, and it seemed safe, relatively simple, and it might reduce mortality without increasing morbidity, which was clearly an important consideration. Of course, to take it further, it was going to need much larger studies, which never actually happened, though I was interested, I don't know if it is still done, that actually hypothermia did catch on with a number of neonatologists for treating the, the vulnerable neonatal brain. So that's one perspective on the brain, is you can look at it under a different climatic condition. Another interesting way of looking at the brain is looking at it from a, a different direction. And um, as opposed to looking at it through the head, is to look at it up the nose. And this is an MR scan. It shows a pituitary tumour and the access to it through the sphenoidal sinus. Again, we see this is an MR. This is in coronal section. You see the pituitary tumour just sits above this airspace and here in sagittal section. And we had the opportunity of getting the gear for doing... Um, Transfenoid hypophysectomy, there you see it's a simple journey, short trip up the hooter, as we used to say. And the point about this and the perspective on this is the really great thing about doing endocrine surgery is you have it audited by endocrinologists. And I was fortunate working with a number of intensely fastidious endocrinologists, there's Dr. Allison, Dr. Tassel. Um, in, in, in Nottingham, uh, Dr. Peacock in Derby, and Dr. Howlett in Leicester, who all made it quite clear that if the results didn't come up to scratch, they would move their, their patients elsewhere. I'm glad to say that didn't happen. Um, and there is a lot to be said for having somebody external viewing your practice. And, of course, that's one of the things that happens at the bar, because you've not just got your lay client... You also have your professional client, your solicitor. And solicitors are absolutely charming to a person. Um, I've never had a dispute with a solicitor um, yet. Um, but they are very quick to move their instructions elsewhere if you don't come up to the mark. And that's good, because it keeps you on your toes. Another way of looking at the brain is to use instruments to guide yourself to the depths of the brain. And this was a, a system called stereotactic neurosurgery, where one uses a number of coordinates and a complex frame to plunge a needle into the depths of the brain. And the system works um, basically on Cartesian coordinates. This is René Descartes, the French philosopher, 
of cogito ergo sum fame, remember, I think, therefore I am. And on one of his many excursions, when he was actually <coughs> working as a mercenary for somebody's army, he became quite poorly, and he was laid up in bed, and he was looking at flies on the ceiling. And it occurred to him that if you could identify a, an object in space and give it a series of numbers, you could take yourself accurately to that number. And it really all goes back to there. This is uh, a series of scans of the, of the posterior fossa. You see here in um, the brain stem, I forgot which part of the brain stem it is, but it's in the brain stem. There's a lesion here. And that's an area which, um, unless neurosurgery has changed a lot, was not very easily accessed. We were particularly interested in that time, at that time, particularly with a, 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 a very um, switched-on oncological colleague and a very switched-on neurological colleague of applying up-to-date technology to the children's brain. And of course, for very good reasons, very, or well, not necessarily good reasons, but understandable uh, commercial reasons, most equipment and most technological changes are brought in from an adult perspective. And so it's something of a challenge to apply them to the, to, to the child's brain. But that's what we set about doing in this area. There you can see, this is actually is the Nottingham device. Um, here you can see the frame on the head, the nose is that way, and this is the sort of needle going down through the brain to meet, reach some otherwise inaccessible area. The application of that, encouraged by, by David Walker in particular, to children's brain tumours was really uh, extremely profitable and led to quite a number of publications um, showing that we could apply it even in children as young as, as six months and encouraged both by David, by our neuroradiologists and our neuropathologists, this was a very profitable area of research. Another way of taking a different perspective of the brain is to look into the centre of it. And this is a system called neuroendoscopy. Here's a, some sort of endoscope. And here you're looking at the floor of the third ventricle. And if you make a hole just there, you make a hole from the inside of the, the, the ventricular system to the outside, to the CSF spaces around the, the base of the brain. And it's a method of treating some forms of hydrocephalus. The application that we were particularly interested in was using this as an alternative to endless shunt revisions for treating people with block shunts. And the important thing about that, of course, is that most children with shunts survive, as you can see from this picture. Um, this is, these are two series, one from Paris, one from London. Um, I wouldn't like to speculate why survival is uh, more than double in Paris than it was in London for the same period, but I would suspect that it was due to direct access to um, neurosurgery rather than having to go through some filtering system. I have to say, the, in the time, as, I, as far as I can recall, the time that I was in practice, the only child who died avoidably from a shunt malfunction was one who didn't have 
direct access or chose not to have direct access to the children's neurosurgery ward. The risk of shunt failure is a cumulative one, whereas there is a high proportion of failures in the first year. It carries on, trickles on year after year, till by the time you get somewhere into your teens or early adult life, nearly 80% of hydrocephalus shunts will have failed. And in one series, a long-term series of children shunted in, in, in childhood, 16% of the revisions were people aged over 16. I'm sure that figure would be much higher if that study was redone. We were fortunate in Nottingham that one of our patients worked very hard to raise us the money to buy the initial equipment. And indeed, our stereotactic equipment was also bought for us by, by, by patients. And this was a cumulative series over about seven years, 88 patients who presented with block shunts. Again, you see the very wide age range. And you can get an idea here of the sort of misery of living with a shunt for some people, where the median number of blockages and infections was quite small, and up to 22, seven children with more, or seven people with more than 10 procedures, 14 with more than one infection, really not a bundle of fun. And we we're quite pleased with the overall success rate in treating blocked hydrocephalus shunts with endoscopy was as, as high as 61%. Compare it with other international figures. Interestingly, when in our first tranche of patients, we did better than in our second tranche of patients. I think there are a number of reasons for that. One is we were probably getting a bit more ambitious. And the other thing is that um, a un fairly uniform feature of minimally invasive surgery is that, on the whole, the fewer number of people are doing it, the practice concentrated in one area, or you're likely to get better results than when everybody has a go. And that also has an interesting resonance with um, medico-legal practice, that it runs almost parallel to the experience in laparoscopic cholecystectomy. You'll be aware that cholecystectomy is the commonestly, most common performed general surgical operation in the UK. It's one which is performed regularly under the NHS and also probably part of the problem very regularly performed um, in the private sector. And as laparoscopic cholecystectomy spread and more and more people were doing it, there were more and more complications. And I have to say, having had conduct of about half a dozen cases in just a couple of years of legal practice, um, it is not that difficult succeeding for the claimant, I would have to say. So what we concluded on the basis of that was that um, Third ventriculostomy was a fairly effective way of treating shunt failure, but selection was important and was still difficult to define. They obviously could still fail like anything. Um, you had to carefully balance the risks and the benefits, and that the imaging was actually crucial. Also, availability could be a problem, and that was a strange thing, that people were very guarded about their practice. And um, 
were reluctant to refer patients for a procedure that they couldn't perform in their own centre. There are also, of course, implications for establishing a service. So that led me to ask this question, do we really have the proof that it actually works? And it made me think about what we could learn from introducing healthcare technology. And if I have a regret about uh, third ventriculostomy, it was that on day one of introducing it as a relatively new thing, at least in the UK, um, it would have been better if we'd set it up prospectively as some sort of study before people took fixed views and it became increasingly difficult to do any sort of comparative trial. But those are the questions one really has to ask. Was it free of risk? Of course, nothing's free of risk in medicine. Did it work for all types of pathology, for all ages? Did it work for all surgeons? And that was very interesting because it quite clearly it didn't if you looked across the country. And did it work for all centres? Again, the fact that there were very widely varying percentage results from different centres indicated that it didn't. Was it always available? There were some places you could do it 24 hours a day. And um, we were very fortunate that in Nottingham we could. We had enough equipment to do it, and we had nursing staff who were skilled enough to, to assist us to make it available. Whether it's better treatment than a shunt, one doesn't know. One can just say that if you have your hydrocephalus managed without a shunt, you don't get, have the complications of a shunt. Did it make economic sense? What are the actual costs of treating hydrocephalus? And that really takes me on to another perspective of actually who bears the cost. Clearly, there are the financial costs to the system, to the provider, but there are also the costs to the patient and the family. And one of the things that I am sure I did not understand fully as a doctor, possibly because I worked in a hospital rather than outside a hospital, was actually fully understanding the costs on all fronts of ill health, whether it's ill health through bad luck or ill health through bad treatment. So those were some conclusions that um, at that time it probably was the current treatment of choice, but there were some decisions that needed to be made and that, in fact, if you're going to introduce new technology, you really did need to set up from the beginning some way of establishing the data to prove the point. One takes a very different view about evidence when you move from my previous profession to my current profession. And it is interesting how much people are prepared to commit themselves on really very, very flimsy evidence. Perspective, when it comes to art, is an interesting thing. The mathematical theories of perspective were all worked out by this chap in the 11th century. He was an Iraqi um, physician, mathematician, physicist, and a general sort of polymath. It was actually him who worked out how light enters the eye as a cone. And in the Middle Ages, artists began to develop an idea of perspective 
This is what's called vertical perspective. And you can see there is some sensible scale to the buildings, and there is some sense of distance to it. Of course, where it all rather comes undone is in the scale of the people. The most important person is the biggest. The foreman is a bit smaller, and the chaps are actually slogging away to build the buildings as are much smaller than the chap who's paying for them. Giotto had his own system of perspective, a form of algebraic perspective. And this is taken from the Scrivini Chapel in um, Padua. In about 1993 or 1994, the Scrivini Chapel was going to be closed, sealed up, because the humidity of people visiting um, was damaging the, the fresci. And one of the great pleasures of my previous life was Giorgio Perilongo, I believe he's coming later to address this society, who's a very distinguished Italian uh, pediatric oncologist in, in, in Padova took um, about a dozen of us, and we had a private viewing of the Scrivini Chapel in his home city. And we thought we might be amongst the last people ever to see it, um, unless one was a serious academic. Fortunately, they've solved that problem. The actual mathematical basis of perspective was solved by this chap, the Florentine Brunelleschi, who designed the dome of the Duomo in Florence. And then it rapidly caught on. This is a particularly dramatic form of perspective by the artist Malozzo and um, copied in this really ultimate example by Perugino, who took it to Rome and then it really took off. I'm going to leave you looking at that while I talk about some other things now. The question that I'm asked most frequently, I've been asked many times in my life, is, is it different? When I went to Canada, they said, isn't it very different? When I changed from being straightforward NHS hack to an academic, I was asked, is it different? In fact, it was quite interesting. I used to wear a suit when I worked for the NHS. And then when I became a full-time pediatrician, I stopped wearing a suit. In the morning, my first day as a senior lecturer in Professor David Hull's department, I bumped into Alan Whiteley, the distinguished neurologist, who said, what's wrong with you? You're not dressing like a doctor anymore. In the afternoon, I bumped into Professor Sir David Hull, who said, that's nice to see you dressing like a pediatrician. <laughs> um, of course, I was asked, isn't it very different when I moved from medicine to law? And the answer is both a bit of yes and a bit of no. Training at the bar is not very different from training in neurosurgery in the 1960s and the 1970s. And I don't mean that unkindly. I was very fortunate. My pupil master, Jonathan Jones, was superb. And I don't underestimate um, the difficulty of having a, 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 an aging doctor thrust upon you as your pupil, um, particularly as your first pupil. And in fact, Jonathan Jones is the only person in uh, our chambers who has actually done a functional brain transplant in that he succeeded in getting 
an ageing medical brain to think not like a doctor, but to think like a lawyer. And that's an interesting thing, because you actually, you do think differently, and it's a physical thing. You become aware of the fact. You actually feel it. You become aware of the fact that you're using your brain differently. You compartmentalise things. You focus on things. You get used to cutting out the rubbish, where before I might try and remember every single thing about one's patient in case they suddenly tipped up. It's really very interesting. It's, you can actually feel it happening, and you say, I'm going to make a positive effort to discard this bit of information, but hang on to this bit of information. Um, there is an element at the bar of, uh, uh, of, of the old surgical method of training, of um, see one, do one, teach one, and the really interesting thing about it is that one's cut loose fairly soon in one's training. And I qualified, I went to medical school in about 1966. Um, no gasps of surprise there, I hear. How, how polite. Um, <laughs> um, I qualified in 1971, and I became a consultant neurosurgeon in 1983. To become a barrister, uh, I didn't have quite enough faith in my own longevity to do a proper law degree, so I did a nine-month, what used to be called a conversion course. Luckily, having Nottingham Law School on one's doorstep was a great advantage. So nine months to a graduate diploma in law, nine months to a bar vocational course, one year of pupillage, of which six months is non-practicing, and six months practicing. And then that's it. You're if you're taken on as a tenant, you either can do it or you can't do it. And it's really quite interesting. So there's quite a, there is quite a contrast there. It does have some similarities to some styles, older styles of surgical training. Uh, one of the similarities to old style surgical training is that if you make a complete prat of yourself, your pupil master will tell you in pretty, pretty clear-cut terms. That, of course, went out of medicine a long time ago. I think about 1995, the BMA advised its membership, don't criticise your, what used to be called junior staff. I'm sure they're not called that anymore. Um, it's probably completely non-PC. Don't criticise them, because sooner or later it'll come back to bite you. And if you call somebody an utterly useless, worthless, brainless sort of person who's made a complete bog of something, it's likely they will come back at you because they will say you called him that because of some physical or other characteristic. The fact is you call them utterly worthless, brainless, lazy, because that's what they are. But it'll come back to bite you. But I'm glad to say at the bar, if you, if, if, if you cock up, they tell you, which is quite good, really, because otherwise you could just muddle on. Um, we used to have in neurosurgery, before imaging came in, or better imaging came in, we used to have a thing called the Friday Night Spine. Does anybody remember the Friday Night Spine? No, somebody's nodding his head. The Friday Night Spine was something before we had MR and CT. The Friday Night Spine was you get a phone call as a neurosurgical registrar, senior registrar, about sort of six o'clock on a Friday evening. 
Mr. So-and-so or Dr. So-and-so had done his fortnightly ward round and he discovered there'd been somebody under his care for about um, 13 days um, with an incredibly difficult diagnostic problem, like he got pain in the back and he couldn't move his legs. And um, if you got a phone call from a consultant, you knew it was one of two things. Either it was a private patient, he was trying to slip in under the NHS, or more likely there'd been such a God Almighty mess that he didn't dare uh, um, let his, his, his junior staff make the call. Well, there are analogies to... I'm sure the Friday Night Spine is a thing of the past. There are analogies, I would have to say, being a barrister. Um, take an example. Um, about a, oh, a couple of months ago, I'd set aside today to do some papers at home. I thought it'd be quite nice. Um, barristers love doing papers, particularly between about midnight and four in the morning, and especially at weekends, and their wives really appreciate that as well. But every so often you persuade your clerks um, that could you just have a day, or part of a day, between Monday and Friday to do your papers, perhaps even at home. That'd be nice, you know, so you don't have to shave. You can get up when you like. You can have a cup of coffee and take the dogs for a walk and even talk to your wife. Um, or if you live in a nice village like we do, you can go up the dog and ferret at lunchtime. So you're, 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 you're prepared for having a nice day. And you're actually going to do some work and look at some papers. Then at about half past eight, you get a phone call from your senior clerk saying, Sir, because that's what they call us in our chambers. It's really rather nice. I haven't been called Sir for years. Um, <laughs> so we wonder if you could help us. Well, there's only one answer to that question, and that is yes. Um, we've had a call from this firm of solicitors. Now, you've not done anything for them before, but they, they're very valuable to chambers. And Mr. X, this firm of solicitors, has suddenly discovered that his case management conference that's going to be in, in, in Leicester at midday today isn't by telephone. He's expected to be there. Now, he's not going to be able to make it. Right, OK, I'll toddle down to Leicester. Oh, and by the way, sir, he has indicated there's just a rather, rather awkward problem of some procedural thing he's actually forgotten to do, and he's a little bit worried that the other side might take a point, or the judge might cut up rough. Do you think you can sort it? Well, of course, the answer is yes. So there is an equivalent to the Friday night spine in law. Um, there are also some, some, some other similarities, which I'm going to touch on towards the end. One gets to learn a lot about memory. When one's a very baby, very baby barrister doing civil stuff, you do what are called small claims, road traffic collisions. And these tend to centre around supermarket car parks and roundabouts and things like that. And it's really very interesting. You have to set off to persuade the judge which of two stationary cars managed to reverse into the other one? <laughs> but it's actually more interesting than that, because what you get to understand is that if 
two people see things from different positions, they do actually and honestly, well, not always honestly, but... It's, it, it's the rash barrister who believes everything his client tells him. His lay client, obviously, believes everything his professional client tells him. goes without saying. Um, well, I'm going to see if I can get out of here without annoying both professions, you see. There's <laughs> somebody from one profession who'll still talk to me afterwards. Um, two, two people see things from different perspectives, and actually do see it differently. And then they develop the picture in their mind, particularly if it was actually their stationary car that happened to be magically moving at the time of the collision. And they repeat it to themselves, and it becomes their memory. I've only come across one circumstance where two people, where several people, will see the same thing from 90 degree angles, or will see an event from 90 degree angles, and all see it identically. And they are nearly always police officers. That the police officer, there's a little, cro there's a little crossroads in the centre of Birmingham. And there was a chap there, I did have a brief contact with criminal law, where there was a chap there who cut up a bit rough. And he had something in his hands which was taken to be an offensive weapon. And just by chance, there were four officers, one at each intersection. And even the one who was looking at the chap from the back managed to see exactly the same as the one who was at the front, what this chap had in his hands and what he was doing with it. Isn't that remarkable? Um, so you do actually learn quite a lot about memory and how it works. I'm going to get a little bit more serious now because it may be helpful to understand why sometimes people get very, very, very upset if they come to harm or their relatives come to harm. Particularly if the relative dies, I can tell you from personal experience that there is only one thing which is more upsetting to somebody if they are bereaved than not having the body. If you don't have the body because it's been lost at sea or lost in an aeroplane crash or lost in warfare, people find that profoundly upsetting. But the only thing which is more upsetting than that is not knowing the facts of why your relative died or came to harm. And sadly, we live in a world where people have less trust. It's not surprising people have less trust. Allegedly, really quite important people can arrange deliberate collisions in the course of Formula One motor races. Allegedly, people can arrange in the course of a rugby match to have an injury that they haven't had. Allegedly, even supported by medical evidence. And of course, more seriously, that governments increasingly do very nasty th things which diminish one's trust in them. So trust generally has taken quite a knocking. And if people sense that they're not being told the facts, they do get very, very upset. Another factor is that 
there is a real cost to ill health, which sometimes we really don't realise until you actually have to set it out in a schedule of costs. The car parking charges at the hospital, for example, they all mount up. The travel to upfront appointments that otherwise would have been avoided, the time off work, they all add up. In particular, for people who don't have much money, small sums of money are actually quite important. One way of helping people deal with their anger and hopefully perhaps decompressing the situation is dealing with complaints better. I'm sure that nothing I'm about to say applies to any of the hospitals in which any of the doctors here work. But I have to say, seeing it from the other side of the fence, um, most hospitals still deal with complaints extraordinarily badly. One still senses, I make quite clear I'm not talking about any particular institution here, one still senses that many institutions, the complaint comes in, doctors and perhaps nurses are asked to write some sort of response, and then it's cut and pasted into a rather sort of anodyne, banal letter, which gets the chief executive's signature. That is not often going to work. It's impersonal, and it usually ends up containing statements which either the family know are not correct, or just read as if they're contradictory and, de and don't actually address the problem that somebody's got. <coughs> Much better to meet with them. Now, I know from paediatric practice that the standard practice, quite rightly, is that if a child dies, is to offer the family the opportunity at any time to come back and talk about it. And I think that's something where certainly adult doctors could learn a lot from paediatric practice in terms of just common humanity, but also common sense. One of the more disgraceful examples of that that I've met, and I can talk about this, I won't name the name, but it was all heard in public, was a 15-day-old boy goes into a hospital very sick with a viral infection. There are a number of things which go wrong. The child's looked after by, principally by a locum registrar who's only just having her third day in the hospital and doesn't actually know a way around it. There is a sort of a handover at lunchtime in which consultant A apparently does or doesn't speak to consultant B. Consultant B then goes off and doesn't speak to consultant C. A message is sent to consultant C by the locum registrar, which is, is, is frankly drivel. But knowing that it's a locum who's only been in the hospital for three days, that consultant doesn't go and visit the child. There's then a series of rolling catastrophes ends up with the baby dying. The inquest, which takes place three years after the child's death, with parents who are highly intelligent managerial class people who have not to date been fobbed off, 
last five days. On the third day of the inquest, Consultant C goes into the witness box, takes the oath, and before anything else happens, before she's asked a question, she says to the coroner, I'd like to say that I should have gone to see the child. The inquest concludes, and a message, I rep I'm representing the parents. The, a message is sent to me that Consultant C would like to see the parents if they would like to see her. They say, well, no, they feel it's probably a little bit too little too late. But ask me, would I just go and thank her for the honesty and the straightforwardness in which she's given her evidence? I go and speak with Consultant C and acknowledge what she said and thank her for what she said and explain to her a little bit about my background. I understand how painful it must have been for her. She says, you know, I want to see those parents at the time, but the management told me I mustn't. I have to say, um, I think there are many consultants put in that situation would tell the management that they could stuff it. Um, but she was a fairly young and rather vulnerable consultant who didn't do that. And then people wonder why parents, relatives get upset. So I think managing complaints better would help a lot of people. One of the things which has come to trouble me a little bit is the modern system of team working. Now, I have worked in a few teams in my time. Um, one of the teams I worked with was David Walker's in paediatric oncology. Another team I worked with was with Michael Sockle in adult oncology, as I've already alluded to with the endocrinologists in doing transphenoidal endocrine surgery. So I have a little bit of insight into team working. But I'm a little bit bothered by what is, I'm told, is the modern system of team working. I've been told, in fact, Her Majesty's coroner for Birmingham and Solihull was told by the chief executive, so not the chief executive, but by the medical director of one of the larger NHS trusts in the country, the standard surgical practice across the NHS is that if somebody comes in one day, they're seen the next day by the consultant for the post-take ward round, and thereafter they are never seen by a consultant again unless the, the team um, of regis specialist registrar and whatever ask them. And we're told this is now standard practice. I don't know if that's true or not. But this is what the medical director said under oath to Her Majesty's coroner for Birmingham and Solihull. So I have to assume that he understands the basis of the oath that he's taken. Um, it's particularly unfortunate in that particular setting because the patient, a 16-year-old a, a girl, was admitted to a paediatric ward with abdominal pain. On the Monday, the post-date ward round is done by the consultant. It's decided she probably does have appendicitis, so she has a, lapros has a laparoscopy um, by an experienced specialist registrar, which excludes appendicitis, and no di diagnosis is made. Over the next five days, the young woman 
is in the paediatric ward, no doubt an appropriate place for her to be, and the general surgeons visit on a daily basis, um, all at subconsultant level. And she has increasing pain during that time. By the Wednesday, a number of tests have been done, and the surgeons can't find a cause for the pain. So they think, well, perhaps it's paediatric. So they ask the consultant paediatrician. The consultant paediatrician decides that the rising pulse rate is due to the pain and is therefore of no significance. And because this young lady is living part of her life in a rather adult fashion, and because there are some rumours of a family problem, he decides it's psychological and it's all in the family. So what does he do? He goes and talks to the child's father. And it was really quite remarkable because at the inquest I said, well, and this inquest was held in front of a jury, which is relatively unusual in, in, in medical cases, unless it's a mental health case. Um, I said, well, did you, did you talk to the young person? No, the paediatrician said, because I decided it was all in the family. So, well, I, tell me if I got this wrong, those of us who aren't practicing doctors, but isn't this just the setting where you've got a 16-year-old girl with unexplained abdominal pain and you think it's all in the family? It's just the sort of setting where perhaps you should be talking to the wrong young person. No, he says. At that point, a lady sitting in the back row of the jury looks at me and I look at her and I just know I'm going to get a, a, a verdict with a neglect rider. Anyway, by the, it's decided it's all in the family, but they keep her in a bit longer and by the Friday she's really pretty poorly. And so some blood tests are ordered in the morning by the team. It's unfortunate because it's a time of year where all of the F FY1s are in their first week, two weeks of practice. So a blood test is decided upon, but nobody actually thinks that it needs to be looked at. The next morning she's really quite poorly, and it's a Saturday, and it takes a lot long time to get things moving, and it's not till mid-afternoon that she actually crashes out, and the next day she dies with raging intra-abdominal sepsis. Now, the concern there is clearly that somebody has been very poorly, but there's no, there's a system, but it just doesn't seem to work. And I'll give you another example of this modern type of team working. A chap's had a, his third ERCP to remove large billary tree um, gallstones. He's had two before. He's always had a bit of a rise in his white cell count, slight rise in his CRP, but he's always got better. He's never had any pain. But on the third occasion, he has a lot of pain. And somebody writes in the notes, oh, and he, he's got his white cell counts up, CRP's up, and his amylase is a little bit up. So one member of the team writes, we'll observe him overnight. If his bloods are normal, to, we'll repeat them tomorrow. If his bloods are normal, he can go. He has his bloods in the morning and nobody looks at them, so he's discharged. It was quite interesting, the inquest, because we've got two registrars. Registrar 3 wasn't on the scene, but we've decided he can't have been to do with him anyway. 
Um, there are two registrars and there are three SHOs technically involved in this. And they explain this man's being looked after by the team. And when we get to registrar two, I, registrar one can't remember anything. Can only go on what's on the notes, not surprising, because then it's two years ago. Um, I say to registrar two, you've told Her Majesty's coroner for Devon um, that this man is looking after the team. Who in the team was responsible for looking out this blood test? And I just look out of the window. An answer came there, none. Now, those are just a few concerns. I mentioned inquests, and inquests are actually very good. It's important, of course, for doctors to understand what inquests are and what they're not. They are not trials, they're an inquiry. They're an inquiry to get at the facts so that the coroner can determine who died, when they died, where they died, and by what means they came by their death. The coroner is not allowed to comment on anything else. The coroner is not allowed to reach any determination that might settle or be perceived as settling either criminal or civil liability. It's the best opportunity in theory for actually getting at the facts because the people who've been looking after the patient are there to be asked questions. Unfortunately, it's clear that inquests aren't really doing their job properly. Um, pass over Harold Shipman, but consider Stafford General Hospital. Consider Gosport War Memorial Hospital. What on earth were the coroners actually doing not to pick up on what was happening in those institutions? I think there are a number of reasons for it. One is, of course, most people at inquests aren't professionally represented because there is no, generally speaking, no funding for people to be represented legally. So they either have to ask somebody to do it pro bono or rely upon them, and there are quite a lot of my, my learned friends I are prepared to represent people pro bono at inquests. Um, but there's no doubt that some coroners are not allowing inquiry to be as full as it should. There are, of course, movers for change, mainly coming from things like police shootings, death in custody, death in people who were detained under the Mental Health Act. So there are some movers for change. And there's some quite good things which are likely to come out of the Coroner's Justices Bill. So there's going to be a Chief Coroner, there's going to be a Deputy Chief Coroner who will be judges, either High Court judges or Circuit judges. There are going to be more full-time coroners who will be judicially trained and it will be possible to appeal to the chief coroner. There is going to be a medical examiner to assist the coroner because, of course, most coroners are not medically trained. The vast majority are just legally trained. Um, whether the medical examiner system will work, I don't know. Um, it's already been talked about that possibly there will just be a equivalent of practice nurses. Um, I have to say it's difficult to believe that any doctor in his right mind thinks you take the job on. But anyway, and clearly there are some bad things about the coroner's and justices bill um, as it's currently being formulated. Um, one is that there is nothing being done about funding for legal representation, which clearly can't be right. And the 
inquest that I mentioned about the 15-day-old baby who died, the trust was represented by a very high-powered um, barrister. One of the interesting things is, as a very baby barrister, you can find, as I was that day, that you're up against somebody who's 25 years your senior. You're either a barrister or you're not a barrister. Well, like you're either a consultant or not a consultant, I suppose. Um, so nothing's been done about legal representation. That can't be right if somebody has died in the state's hospital. The state has infinite funds to bring to bear on it, and the family are left to muddle through unless they can find representation somehow. There are some even more disconcerting things, of course, is that, as you know, the, this government is very keen to um, have a right whereby inquests can be held in private. That can't be right, can it? That can't be right that if somebody is killed through the agents of the state, that the family may not be present when the circumstances are looked into and may never know the circumstances. That can't be right. I'm not just talking about police shootings, but in principle it can't be right. There's even a more alarming thing, and I'll just ask you about this. A couple of years ago, my wife and I got a thing from some NHS agency asking us, would we go along and have a, put in a quick medical questionnaire and give some blood for some study which was being done, an epidemiological study? Did, did anybody in the audience? Yes. Did, did anybody go along and do it? Hmm, yeah. I would have done a few years ago. <laughs> of course I would have done, because and we know that the thing which has really made a difference to the public are uh, certainly not neurosurgery. The things that made a big difference to the public have been drains, family planning, immunization, all these big things which come out of epidemiological work and studies. The rest is just the fine-tuning. They're the luxury things. They're nice to have, but they're the luxuries. Well, it's the blood bit that worried me, because when they've got the blood, they've got your DNA, haven't they? And the coroners and justices bill, there was a clause, it's, it's gone now, but it may come back, that any government minister could seek an information sharing order. That means that anything which is held by any other government department could be passed on to the minister. You think about that for a moment without being too paranoid. Your DNA has been given as part of an epidemiological study. Somebody at their home office decides, wouldn't it be great? A million and a half people have signed up for this epidemiological study. Another million and a half people on the DNA database. That, of course, is shared with the CIA because all information acquired by the UK government is shared for security shared with both the CIA. And your DNA just happens to get muddled up on one of the government's computer programs. And they confuse it with somebody who the CIA think may be antisocial. And so one day you're sitting outside a lovely cafe in the Piazza Vecchio in Bergamo, and half a dozen people pick you up and put you in the back of a van. The next thing you know is you're in Algeria or Egypt, and people are doing very rude things to intimate parts of your body. 
or you're just walking in the Italian countryside and somebody in Langley decides to zap you out from four to 6,000 feet. Now, it may be paranoid, but just, just think about it. <laughs> I'm going to turn, finally, to just two points. And I go back to the, isn't it very different? Well, fundamentally, it's not, because, you see, I don't... I have an idea from some of the more senior people, from erstwhile colleagues and friends, but many of us, certainly in the 1960s, didn't become doctors to sort of cure people or anything silly like that. Um, that would be overambitious. We just became doctors on the basis that it would be quite nice to make life or death just that little bit easier, a little bit more acceptable. So to help people who are in a disadvantaged situation to get the best out of an imperfect system and acted as advocates for our patients in that way to try and get better services. Well, in fact, as a, as, as, as a barrister, one's not doing anything very different. You're trying to get not necessarily an acceptable, but at least an understandable result for disadvantaged people out of an imperfect system. So actually, philosophically, the ethos is exactly the same. I would have to say, and it saddens me to say this, um, it saddens me for my old profession, is that where there is a difference, there is a great, there is a difference in probity. It doesn't apply to anybody in this room, um, but I would say that I've not to date ever been actively deceived by a, 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 a colleague at the bar. The bar is very small, and it only functions, believe it or not, whatever the misconceptions of some of the doctors in the audience may have, only, only functions on people being straight with one another. doesn't mean you're not going to fight claw and nail to get the best for your client. Of course you are. But it works on the basis of people being, being basically straightforward. I have to say, in 30-odd um, years as a doctor, there were occasions when people were less than straight with regards to what had been happening to their patients. But when it comes down to it, the thing which actually makes the two professions very similar is actually the thing that makes it work, the ethos, is actually one of care and caring. And so on that basis, I would propose that my past profession and my present one actually aren't very different. <laughs> well, of course, one of the interesting things is in my previous life, I did do a little bit of work as an expert witness. And um, being cross-examined was never actually a bundle of fun. In fact, the last time I was cross-examined was by two silks, both from the chambers at which I'm now at. Um, I have to say, if I'd had any of the knowledge and perhaps a little bit of the um, embryonal skill that I have now, I would never ever gone into a witness box. But yes, please, if anybody has any questions, Please Jonathan, <coughs> Jonathan, uh, as entertaining as ever, um, and uh, very thought-provoking, 
one of the things I think that um, sometimes goes wrong in the communication between um, patients and, and doctors <coughs> is, is the concept of risk. Um, and you are saying that many of the decisions are based upon flimsy evidence, and you showed some, some non-randomized flimsy evidence for your techniques in Nottingham. Um, what about this concept of risk? Because we, we don't, you know, risk is not, is not uh, uh, is there all the time. So has it, have you had a greater perspective on risk? <coughs> There's no doubt. Profession? There's no doubt since becoming a lawyer, I'm very much more risk aware. Um, my wife says that I've actually become a little bit difficult to live with. But she asks me a question, says, well, it's only me. You can just give me a straight answer, yes or no? I say, well, no, it's not as simple as that, I'm afraid. So suppers in our house become rather long and drawn out. Um, I think it'd be as easy or as difficult as you want to make it. I think the important thing, and I, I think probably I did used to practice like this as a, as a doctor, is to explain that there are a number of potential courses of action. Sometimes there may only be one or two courses. Maybe you either have your appendix out or you don't have your appendix out. But often, the, often particularly in an increasingly complicated medical world, there are many more choices and many more options, including referral to a colleague, referral to another institution even referral to another European country. My view is that the, or my advice would be, the important thing is to explain the options and then explain why you recommend the course of action that you feel would be in the best interest of the patient. That takes time. Does that, does that help? Well, the patient is supposed to have the choice, and you, you're, you're being a little bit uh, uh, proprietorial there, really, aren't you? I mean, in that you're, you're, you're backing up your choice, but we moved on from that, the patient to make choice. I don't think that doesn't remove choice from the patient. I think when you are giving professional advice, the, the worst situation to leave the recipient of the advice, whether it's medical advice or legal advice, is feeling, well, I don't know which is the best to take. And I think you can, without being patronising, um, without in any way removing the patient's autonomy, if you explain to them, these are the options, some people would do X, some Y, some Z, <coughs> I recommend X, and this is why I recommend X. They still have the choice. Uh, Mark. <coughs> Thank you very much, uh, Jonathan. That was a wonderful talk. Um, <coughs> as... <coughs> Sorry, it's now, now working. Yes, wonderful talk. I don't know whether you... Um, as uh, somebody who has now a foot in the other camp and someone who is um, a medical scientist, I'm not overdoing it and saying that, <laughs> um, I wonder if you perhaps got uh, a view, a different view from the one that you had about 
medical experts, um, whether in fact they do have a grasp of the scientific evidence, and whether they do represent uh, a body of medical opinion. That's a very big question. Uh, yes, I do have a view about medical experts. <coughs> of course, I make it absolutely clear, and of course I have to be particularly careful. I always emphasize to both my lay client and my professional client is that I just use my medical knowledge, um, whatever it may be, um, to understand the facts of the case. I don't give a, a medical opinion. Um, one senses sometimes that some opinions are not terribly logical. And one of the interesting, in fact, one of the things which attracted me to law is that if you can't really, really understand something or can't really get to it, as long as you have an explanation which withstands logical analysis, <coughs> there was at least a moment in time when your view is supportable. And so I'm, I'm looking for what is logical, what is supported by the facts, and what withstands logical analysis. <coughs> so that's my first point about getting to grips with expert opinions. Clearly, there does come a time where you want the expert to actually answer the question he's been asked. You do need him to understand the essence of breach of duty, which is either an act of omission or commission, is one which no reasonably competent person in that post would have done or would not have done. Um, what is quite interesting, and is, is not tangential, you ask, is the use of the so-called literature. And I think this is a very difficult area for lawyers. I, I would suspect that many lawyers have as much difficulty understanding a medical scientific paper as the average doctor would have in reading a, a law report. What is very interesting, of course, is that the, the so-called headnote, which is our equivalent of a, your abstract, is often as unrepresentative as the content as some of your medical abstracts are. Um, if I can just talk about the literature for a minute, because it's something I've always had a bit of a bee in my bonnet about. Of course, when the literature is brought into a medical case to support an opinion, usually the papers, the learned articles, have not been a hypothesis-driven experiment to test the question that the lawyers are asking. Of course, most papers aren't hypothesis-driven anyway. They're just experiential. So the first question you have to ask yourself is, is this actually anything to do with the question in front of me, or is it just peripheral? It may still be valid. The second thing you have to ask, and this is really difficult for lawyers, is because most lawyers don't come from a science background, you understand, they come from an arts background. Um, as you can see, I come from an arts background. I've studied medicine as an art rather than a science, given the choice. Um, is it good science? Now, a prime example of bad science which had far-eating uh, consequences of a series of papers by Geddes et al., the unified hypothesis which was going to solve all the problems to do with allegedly inflicted head injury in, ba in babies. 
but when you actually read the paper, the conclusions aren't supported by the data therein. Yet this thing spun on for five, six years. It wasn't until the second week in the Court of Appeal that the, the lead author, having been told for four years by her colleagues, or by most of her colleagues, that what she was saying wasn't supported by her data, held her hands up under cross-examination and said, well, yes, we realize it's wrong now. That's never been retracted in the medical, in the medical author, uh, article. It's never been retracted by the authors in a, a letter to the journal. So, yes. distressed for the patient to have to wait that long. 
um, and would ring, uh, having had the case discussed with him earlier in the day, often in often social hours by his colleague, let's say physician, um, that Jonathan would then give a call at three in the morning to say, I'm taking your patient to the theatre, and then another call at 4.30 the same morning to say, you'll be pleased to know we're coming out of the theatre now, uh, and your Mr. Smith is waggling his toe. Um, so a bit merciless um, in that regard. It was a delight then, here we were, seeing Scarves um, in Southampton. Uh, Jonathan came about, a, I think, a year after I arrived here. Um, and we were able to streamline then uh, the joint management of patients, especially adult patients, uh, with uh, brain tumours. And that proceeded then for our personal clinical arrangements, and it then moved out to arrangements within Nottingham and its catchment area, and then nationally, a bit as he's alluded to with Georgia Perilongo, uh, internationally as well, it's been one of the few neurosurgeons, certainly British, who specialise in paediatric neurosurgery. So paediatric surgery, of course, is a, a very long-standing specialty, but paediatric neurosurgery, uh, certainly when Jonathan was appointed, was done by all the neurosurgeons. Um, and he gradually uh, increased his interest there, which he had, before he arrived, um, so that he carved it up something that is now done by one to three and a half uh, neurosurgeons in the same uh, technical area. The international uh, aspect of what Jonathan uh, set up, uh, that I enjoyed as well, uh, involves several trips uh, together uh, to uh, Belgium and France. Driving over the years, uh, in his increasingly powerful motorcar. <laughs> um, usually to take a car to the coast and then to get the local transport uh, over a ferry and then whatever rail uh, trip was involved, um, going mainly to Brussels and to northern France. And the last such overland trip we took was in Jonathan's Porsche at the time. Um, <coughs> We were pushed for time, as you can imagine, setting off here from uh, at a time that we should have set off at least an hour or two earlier. Um, so, a rather fast journey within the speeding, of course. Um, but I disgraced myself on this last occasion um, in not being a good traveller. Um, and only just managed to get the door open of the car as we pulled up uh, in Phoenixville uh, Harbour. From that point on, almost uh, soiling a Porsche, uh, we went in the future by plane. <laughs> <laughs> As you know, relevant to this evening's meeting, he's um, interested, in, interested in law, uh, led Jonathan to become a founder member of the uh, Nottingham Medical, uh, Medical Legal uh, Society. Um, and, uh, and that was, I uh, now come on to the point about eight years ago, the current point. So, uh, sort of comparing courageous consultant to another colleague consultant in another field and saying, you just made a patient, 
between the lines before, you say that first thing you do. Um, but the decision became from a secure area here, within the NHS, possibly by uh, his employer, health service, and university, uh, to go where you have to stand, as I am, stand on your own feet in the uh, chambers. Um, uh, you've heard earlier, you alluded to if you were uh, asked once and don't measure up, uh, you're perhaps not asked a second time um, to, to um, I think that's really uh, uh, courageous. Um, I would just say, as to alluded to really here, a little bit, actually, of some slides about the pictures, um, but Jonathan has um, interests outside professional work. Uh, the ones I'll mention uh, relate to the things we did on these uh, foreign trips. Um, it's very knowledgeable about wine. Uh, um, I've been down many wines, particularly at the time uh, we were going to process French wines, it might now be Italian wine, if I've gone by, uh, to the Valley of Origin of this wine to the bottom. That's quite impressive. I have still masters of wine to keep that to their own many terms. The French link uh, of Jonathan, outside work, is maintained with his great interest in the Asterix de Gaulle. And you'll notice just at the beginning came a few of the talk, came a few uh, mentions of what was going on in the period around the BC and the uh, 80s time change, um, and uh, that relates his interest in the Asterix and how the Gauls fought the Roman invaders, uh, uh, starting with his oldest son, uh, Robin, who is now uh, early 30s. So Jonathan, if I may, on behalf of the three societies who I think here uh, tonight uh, we are talking about, um, Medical Legal Society, the Nottinghamshire Law Society, and the Medical Hierarchy. Michael, thank you very much. Um, I just like to remind you of four things, five things. The ball is taking place on May the 22nd. Please keep that in your diary. There will be food served afterwards now. Please enjoy that. If you'd like to make a donation towards its costs, it keeps our treasurer smiling ever broader. And five pounds is not an unreasonable amount of money to put in a bucket. Please sign the register if you haven't done so already. And this is a meeting between the Pickering Association and the Medico-Chirurgical Society. And Wayne Carter, who's our administrator here in the middle, if you are a Nottingham graduate and you wish to make sure that they know about, that they know that you are a Nottingham graduate here, please speak to Wayne. He'll be outside afterwards. Have a good evening. Uh, drive home safely. And see you in two weeks' time to hear Mr. Gordon McKinley, who you'll be uh, fascinated by. Thank you.